Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. I have just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, who has invited me to form a government. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. Iraq collapsing, Syria collapsing, Yemen collapsing, Libya collapsing, and everything else in turmoil. Nothing to do with us. Hey everyone, welcome to Where We Are with Taryn Siegel. The podcast that breaks down what happened in the world in the last seven days and how we got here. On today's episode... So the first thing to say is this is not a normal day in terms of it's not a normal, it's not a normal uh, situation as you well know. If I stopped posting, it's probably because I fell off a cliff face or got robbed by hijackers or something. But don't worry, I'll be fine. But first, here's what happened in the world this week. A jetliner carrying 91 passengers and seven crew members crashed into a crowded neighborhood in Karachi, Pakistan, three kilometers from the airport, after apparent engine failure. It's unknown exactly how many people on the ground were injured, but five houses were destroyed in the crash. There have been two survivors on the plane identified. Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan said an immediate inquiry would be instituted. The plane had logged over 25,000 flights prior to the tragedy on Friday. Chinese top leaders Thousands of delegates from across China arrived in Beijing for the country's annual legislative session after a two-month delay due to the coronavirus. The session is not so much a chance for the National People's Congress to actually pass laws as it is an opportunity for the ruling Communist Party to assert its authority and communicate its message. As an authoritarian regime, the parliament doesn't have the power to actually pass laws on its own, which is why it's called, somewhat derisively, the rubber stamp parliament. The session kicked off, as always, with President Xi Jinping delivering a lengthy address about the year's past achievements and their plans for next year. Zhongfang 
With the Chinese economy, like every economy across the world, ravaged by the pandemic, Xi announced that they would not be setting a target economic growth for this year and would be capping their defense budget at 6.6%, the lowest increase in years. But the biggest controversy from the session was when a spokesman for the National People's Congress announced on Thursday that the body was considering a bill that could crack down on opposition activity in Hong Kong. The spokesman said the bill aimed at establishing and improving the legal system and enforcement mechanisms for the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region to safeguard national security. What's the overview of why the world needs a WHO? By any judgment, this organization is extraordinary. It focuses on the inequities and inequalities in health between poor and rich, like no one, no other body in the world. It is the meeting place of all the people who are working on health all over the world. It sets the standards on nutrition, on non-communicable diseases, on everything to do with environmental health, every area of health, the WHO sets the standards. President Trump has been ramping up his criticism of the World Health Organization this week, tweeting out on Tuesday a letter that he had sent to the body's director general, accusing the organization, among other things, of an alarming lack of independence from China. Trump had announced on April 14th that the U.S. would be temporarily freezing its contributions to WHO because of its, in his opinion, mishandling of the pandemic. In the Tuesday letter, he threatened to make the freeze permanent unless there was evidence of substantial improvements in the organization in 30 days. Partly in response to this, and partly in response to pressure from other countries, WHO agreed to an independent, impartial review of its management of the international response to the novel coronavirus. The director general obviously tried to take a more conciliatory tone to the president's threats and accusations, saying, We appreciate the mandate given to the WHO in the resolution to investigate the origins of the coronavirus, and we are confident that researchers, medical practitioners around the world will be empowered in the pursuit of vaccines and other countermeasures through this knowledge. The criticism by President Trump of WHO comes as his own response to the outbreak has come under criticism, with the outbreak in the U.S. by far the worst in the world, and the U.S. death toll, at the time of recording, approaching 100,000, the lower limit of the original worst-case scenario projection. You know, obviously, we have to wait till it's gone. It will be gone, and uh, we want to be back to where we were, yes. Without a vaccine, sir, why do you think the virus will just be gone? It's going to go. It's going to leave. It's going to be gone. It's going to be eradicated. And we also learned a lot. Again, if you have a flare-up in a certain area, if you have a, I call them burning embers, boom, we put it out. We know how to put it out now. And finally, in some good news, a team of researchers at Oxford University, frantically at work on a vaccine like the rest of the scientific community, are seeing some great progress. The team is expanding their preliminary clinical trials to 10,000 patients across the UK. They also reached a deal with a pharmaceutical supply company this week, meaning that if the trials are successful and the vaccine they're developing is confirmed to work, they could be releasing millions of shots as early as September. But it's worth reminding you that scientists have never created a vaccine from scratch this quickly, so it's far from clear if uh, it'll prove to be safe and effective in the end. And with that, it's time for this week's Deep Dive.
uh, I've been making a documentary for the last three years about an indigenous community called the Shipibo. This is my third time going out there to film their story. Paris Toome is a filmmaker from London. When he arrived in Peru, he thought he already knew the story he was there to tell about an indigenous tribe in the Amazon jungle that he'd been researching for years. But he arrived at a very strange time. I arrived on the 11th of March, and a few days later, Peru went into lockdown. Yeah, literally, right. I was one of the last planes to commercially go into Peru. While some countries are cautiously on the road towards opening up again after weeks or months of lockdown, the outbreak in Latin America has only intensified in the past week, seeping out from the megacities to ravaged communities throughout the Amazon. Peru is one of the worst hit regions with cases surging over 100,000 on Thursday. Paris spent five weeks there, recording everything he saw as the country desperately tried to contain the outbreak and ultimately failed. Lockdown in Peru is very different to lockdown in the UK. The Peruvian lockdown involved military and police controlling the streets. Their lockdown changed while I was there. It started off like a lockdown like England, you were still allowed out, and then it changed to curfews. From 5 a.m. until 4 p.m. was the time that you were allowed out. Then the president introduced day different genders could go out. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, the men were allowed out. Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, the women were allowed out. And then Sunday, no one was allowed out. Paris agrees that there was some logic to this gender-divided lockdown. But pretty quickly, that plan backfired because people started stockpiling food. So, for example, if a husband was sick, the wife would take advantage of her day out to get as much food as possible. And soon, stores were being depleted. I felt like I was in a film. Walking around, the police and the army, and every, like, they've got huge guns. And like some of the police are kids, you know, 18, 20 years old, and they're just sort of like given guns, and they just... You know, they don't seem like they've had much training, you know, because they're still quite young. And you see him holding his pistols, and it just makes you wonder. Within a few weeks, the police patrolling the streets had arrested 11,000 people for breaking curfew. And if they didn't arrest you, they would fine you. They were very strict. I think it was 400 solos for breaking curfew, and that's roughly about £100, £120. Um, and if you think that the average Peruvian earns about six to eight pounds a day, it's a lot. And then if you were caught on your car, generally a motor taxi, because in Peru a lot of people drive motor taxis, you would find a thousand souls. But the finding system also had a huge flaw. It was quickly abused by a corrupt police force. I heard that police were stripping parts. So they'd take your car, impound it, strip the motor for parts, then you have to pay the fine and you get your car back in pieces or your motor taxi back in pieces. So, yeah, there's a lot of corruption going on. I kind of underestimated the whole lockdown situation. I was in, I was in a little bit of a bubble um, and I really didn't want to leave because I was making a documentary and I was getting quite stubborn, uh, refusing to leave. 
So Paris ignored two emergency repatriation flights that could have lifted him out and taken him home to the UK. He decided he was going to bunker down and see this bizarre situation through until the British embassy gave him a harsh reality check. I decided to go home because uh, I heard information that this could go on for three to six months. The embassy said, said if, you, if you plan to stay, make sure that you have enough uh, finance to back you for three to six months because they don't know what's, what could happen from now until then. It was the final repatriation flight. This was the last flight that they were going to send for British nationals to get back home. I decided to get this flight Sunday night and the flight was Wednesday morning. So I had 72 hours to, to get to Lima. Paris had been filming in Bacalpa in the east of Peru in the Amazon jungle. Lima is in the west of Peru, a 24-hour drive away. And since the country was in lockdown, traveling meant liaising with the embassy and the Peruvian government to get permits, hiring a driver whose details had to be sent to the British embassy, and working with the government to make sure they'd be able to get past the police checkpoints. We were quite lucky that we got all that sorted because if we didn't leave by Tuesday, we wouldn't have been able to make the flight. So it was really against the wire and time was really not on our side. Just those logistics alone took a full day to finish out of the three he had left. And that was the easy part. Next was a dangerous 24-hour drive to the capital. This road, this highway's notorious for having hijackers on, on the road and they rob, rob people, particularly tourists. I made an Instagram story feed to keep people updated as I went, just in case anything did happen. I'm coming home, motherfuckers. So I'm leaving Peru on what is probably going to be the longest journey home ever. It's going to take me about 48 hours to 72 hours. And I, I'm doing this post because the first 24 are pretty dangerous. Um, so I'm going to keep you all updated via the stories just so that I'm safe. So if I stop posting, it's probably because I fell off a cliff face or got robbed by hijackers or something. But don't worry, I'll be fine. This is just protocol. I'll be fine. The scariest part was the the drivers going around the cliffs. Like they, the roads are so windy. There's not a straight road for for the whole journey, and uh, it's just constantly turning left and right. And sometimes the wheels were skidding and stuff like that. And it was like we had to tell them to slow down. Once we arrived into Lima, the repatriation team, they ran everyone up onto buses. So there was about 500 people all trying to get home. Some people were on reserves lists, so there was a lot more people than there should have been, just hoping to get a seat on the plane. And so then what they do is they line us up and they take all of our details and they put us onto the buses and they explain what's going to happen. Uh, just to explain how the day is going to pan out. So the first thing to say is this is not a normal day in terms of it's not a normal it's not a normal uh, situation as you well know. We're not using a normal airport because there is no operation from the regular Lima airport. So we're going to be flying from the military base, the Peruvian Air Force military base. 
So we we were going through the army barracks um, onto that terminal and take off from there. So that was a very strange experience, seeing army on the plane and seeing, you know, army people checking your bags and sniffer dogs sniffing your bags and things like that. It was, yeah, it was quite a surreal experience. The whole journey in the end took 55 hours. He did get safely back to London and started a two-week quarantine back at his flat. A quarantine that was self-imposed, by the way. Paris arrived to find a very different kind of lockdown in his home country. And meanwhile, back in Peru, it turned out the crisis he had witnessed and documented was only the beginning. In the weeks since, the situation went from bad to worse to so much worse that on Friday, the head of Peru's COVID-19 task force said, this is war. The country's fragile health system is already cracking under the pressure, with ventilators scarce and only two and a half ICU beds per 100,000 Peruvians. In Lima, a small crowd of health workers stand outside a hospital, protesting the lack of PPE, with masks being reused. I do actually want to say something else as well. You know, in the UK, we get a lot of support. We get support from the healthcare system and the in- we get income support. Um, but in Peru, the people don't have good healthcare. That's why they're being so strict. They don't have an income support system either. So when these people aren't working, they're not getting money, which means they can't feed their families. So I think one of the real issues in Peru and with this whole lockdown is that the low income, lower income countries are going to really struggle with starvation and other issues that are going to come from not being able to work and provide for the family. So that is a real concern in Peru. All right, and that's our show. Tune in next week for another episode of Where We Are with Taryn Siegel. And stay safe, guys. Thank you.